Chapter Forty of Trail of the Hawk. The Sleepervox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. Trail of the Hawk by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Forty. After six festival months of married life, in April or May, nineteen fourteen, the happy Mrs. Carl Erickson did not have many modern theories of marriage in general, though it was her theory that she had such theories. Like a majority of intelligent men and women. Ruth was, in her rebellion against the canonical marriage of slipper-warning and obedience, emphatic but vague. She was of precise opinion regarding certain details of marriage, but in general as inconsistent as her library. It is a human characteristic to be belligerently sure as to whether one prefers plush or tan upholstery on car seats, but not to consider whether government ownership of railroads will improve upholstering. To know with certainty of perception that it is a bore to have one's husband laugh at one's pet economy of matches or string or ice, but to be blandly willing to leave all theories of polygamy, polandry, monogamy, and varietism to the clever Russian Jews. As regards details, Ruth definitely did want a bedroom of her own, a desire which her mother would have regarded as somehow immodest. She definitely did want shaving and hair-brushing kept in the background. She did not want Carl, the lover, to drift into Carl, the husband. She did not want him to lose touch with other people, and she wanted to keep the spice of madness which from the first had seasoned her comradeship. These things she delightfully had in May 1914. They were largely due to her own initiative, Carl's drifting theories of social structure, concerned for the most part the wages of workmen and the ridiculousness of class distinctions. Reared in the farming district, the amateur college, the garage, and the hangar, he had not, despite imagination, devoted two seconds to such details as the question of whether there was freedom and repose. Not to speak of a variety of taste as regards opening windows and sleeping diagonally across a bed, in having separate bedrooms much though he had been persuaded to read of modern fiction. His race still believed that marriage bells and roses were the proper portions of marriage to think about. It was due to Ruth, too, that they had so amiable a flat. Carl had been made careless of surroundings by years of hotels and furnished rooms. There was less real significance for him in the beauty of his first home than in the fact that they, too, had a bathroom of their own that he no longer had to go, clad in a drab bathrobe, laden with shaving materials and a towel and talcum powder and a broken hand mirror and a toothbrush, like a perambulating drugstore toilet counter, down a boarding-house hall to that modified hall bedroom with a tin tub, which his doctor-landlord had called a bathroom. Pictures, it must be admitted, Give a room an air pleasant it is to sit in large chairs by fireplaces and feel yourself a landed gentleman. But nothing filled Carl with a more delicate and truly spiritual satisfaction than having a porcelain tub, plenty of hot water, and the privilege of leaving his shaving brush in the Erickson bathroom, with a fair certainty of finding it there when he wanted to shave in a hurry. But careless of surroundings or not, Carl was stirred when, on their return from honeymooning in the Adirondacks, 
He carried Ruth over the threshold, and they stood together in the living room of their home. It was a room to live in and laugh in. The woodwork was white enameled, the walls covered with gray Japanese paper. There were no portieres between living room and dining room, and small hall, so that the three rooms, with their light reflecting walls, gave an effect of spaciousness to rather a cramped and old-fashioned apartment. There were not many pictures, and no bric-a-brac, yet the rooms were not bare, but clean and trim and distinguished. With the large davenport and the wing-chair, chintz-cushioned brown willow chairs, and Ruth's upright piano, excellent mahogany, and a few good rugs, there were only two or three vases, and they genuinely intended for holding flowers, and there was a bare mantelpiece that rested the eyes over the fuzzy clean gas log. The pictures were chosen because they led the imagination on. Etchings and color prints, largely by unknown artists, like windows looking on delightful country. The chairs assembled naturally in groups. The whole unit of three rooms suggested people talking. It was home, first and last, though it was one cell in one layer of a seven-story building. On a street walled in with such buildings in a city which lined up more than three hundred of such streets, from its southern tip to its northern limit along the Hudson, and threw in a couple of million people in Brooklyn and the Bronx. They lived in the nineties, between Broadway and Riverside Drive, a few blocks from the Winslow House in distance, but one generation away in matter of decoration. The apartment house itself was completely old-fashioned, with an intermittent elevator run by an intermittent Negro youth, who gave most of his time to the telephone switchboard and mysterious duties in the basement, also with a downstairs hall that was narrow and carpeted and lined with offensively dark wood. But they could see the Hudson from their living room, on the sixth floor at the back of the house. The agent assured them that probably not till the end of time would there be anything but low private houses between them and the river. They were not haunted by Aunt Emma Truegate Winslow, and Ruth, who had long been oppressed by late Victorian bric-a-brac and American Louis XV furniture, so successfully adopted elimination as the keynote that there was not one piece of furniture bought for the purpose of indicating that Mr. and Mrs. Carl Erickson were well-to-do. She dared to tell friends who, before the wedding, inquired what she wanted, that checks were welcome, and need not be monogrammed. Even Aunt Emma had been willing to send a check, provided they were properly married at St. George's Church. Consequently, their six rooms showed a remarkable absence of such usual wedding presents as prints of the smugly smiling and euphoric Mona Lisa, three muffin stands in three degrees of marquette, three electro-royalists, four punch bowls, three sets of almond dishes, a pair of bird-carvers that did not carve, a bust of Dante in new art marble, or a deluxe set of de Maupassant translated by a worthy lady with a French lexicon. Instead, they bought what they wanted, rather an important thing to do, but, like most importances, thoroughly worthwhile. The living room was their own. Carl's bedroom was white and simple, though spotty with aviation medals and silver cups, and monoplanes sketchily rendered in gold, and signed photographs of aviators. Ruth's bedroom was also plain and white and dull Japanese gray, 
a simple room with that simplicity of hand embroidery real lace and fine linen appreciated by exclamatory women friends she taught carl to say dog instead of dog for dog watwa instead of water for water whether she was more correct in her pronunciation or not does not matter new york said dog and it amused him just then to be very eastern she taught him the theory of house lighting carl had no financial objection to unshaded incandescent bulbs glowing from the ceiling but he came to like the shaded electric bulbs which ruth installed in the living-room when she introduced four candles as sole lighting of the dining-room table however he grumbled loudly at his inability to see what he was eating she retired to her bedroom and he huffily went out to get a cigar at the cigar counter he repented of all the unkind things he had ever done or could possibly do and returned to eat humble pie and eat it by candlelight inside of two weeks one of the things which carl had always known was that the harmonious candlelight brought them closer together at dinner the teaching in this period of adjustments was not all on ruth's part it was due to carl's insistence that she tried to discover what her theological beliefs really were she admitted that only at twilight vespers with a gale of violins in an arched roof did she really worship in church she did not believe that priests and ministers who seemed to be ordinary men as regards earthly things had any extraordinary knowledge of the mysteries of heaven yet she took it for granted that she was a good christian she rarely disagreed with the dunlobbies who were catholics or her aunt emma who regarded anything but high church episcopalianism as bad form or her brother mason who was an uneasy unitarian or carl who was an unaggressive agnostic of the four it was carl who seemed to have the greatest interest in religions he blurred out such monologues as i wonder if it isn't pure egotism that makes a person believe that the religion he is born to is the best my country my religion my wife my business we think that whatever is ours is necessarily sacred or in other words that we are gods and then we call it faith and patriotism the hindu or the christian is equally ready to prove to you and mind you he may be a wise old man with a beard that his national religion is obviously the only one find out what you yourself really do think and if you turn out a sun worshipper or a hard-shell baptist why good luck if you don't think for yourself then you're admitting that your theory of happiness is the old dog asleep in the sun and maybe he is happier than the student but i think you like to experiment with life his arguments were neither original nor especially logical they were largely given to him by bone stillman professor fraser and chance paragraphs in stray radical magazines but to ruth politely reared in a house with three maids where it was as tactless to discuss god as to discuss sex his deferences seemed terrifyingly new she was not the first who had complacently gone to church after reading bernard shaw but she did try to follow carl's loose reasoning to find out what she thought and what the spiritual fashions of her neighborhood made her think she thought 
The process gave her many anxious hours of alternating impatience with fixed religious dogmas and loneliness for the comfortable refuge of a personal God whose yearning had spoken to her in the Gregorian chant. She could never get herself to read more than two chapters of any book on the subject, nor did she get much light from the conversation. One set of people supposed that Christianity had so entirely disappeared from intelligence circles that it was not worth discussion. Another set supposed that no one but cranks ever thought of doubting the essentials of Christianity, and that, therefore, it was not worth discussion. And to a few superb women who, she knew, their religion was too sweet a reality to be subjected to the noisy chatter of discussion. Gradually, Ruth forgot to think often of the matter, but it was always in the back of her mind. They were happy, Carl and Ruth. To their flats came such of Ruth's friends as she kept because she liked them for themselves, with a fantastic assortment of personages and awkward rovers whom the ex-aviator knew. The Ericsons made an institution of the bruncheon, breakfast luncheon, at which coffee and eggs and deviled kidneys, a table of auction bridge, and a davenport of talk and a wing chair of Sunday papers were to be had on Sunday morning from ten to one. At bruncheon, Walter McMoney's told to Florence Cruden his experiences in exploring southern Greenland by airplane, with the Schillis Banning exposition. At bruncheon, Bobby Winslow, now an intern, talked baseball with Carl. At bruncheon, Phil Donnelly regarded cynically all the people he did not know and played piquet in a corner with Ruth's father. Carl and Ruth joined the Peace Waters Country Club, and in the spring of 1914, went there nearly every Sunday afternoon for tennis and a dance. Carl refused golf, however. He always repeated a shabby joke about the shame of taking advantage of such a tiny ball. He seemed content to stick to office, home, and tennis court. It was Ruth who planned their weekend trips, proposed at 8 a.m. Sunday, and began at 2 that afternoon. They explored the tangled rocks and woods of Lloyd's Neck on Long Island, sleeping in an abandoned shack, curled together like kittens. They swooped on a Dutch village in New Jersey, spent the night with an old farmer, and attended the Dutch Reformed Church. They tramped from New Haven to Hartford over Easter. Carl was always ready for their gypsy journeys. He responded to Ruth's visions of foaming South Sea Isles, but he rarely sketched such pictures of himself. He had given all of himself to joy in Ruth. Like many men called adventurers, he was ready for anything but content with anything. It was Ruth who was finding new voyages. She kept up her sentiment work and progressed to an active interest in the Women's Trade Union League and took part in picketing during a Panama hat worker strike. She may have had more curiosity than principle, but she did badger policemen pluckily. She was studying Italian, the Montessori method. Cooking, she taught new dishes to her maid. She adopted a careless suggestion of Carl and violently increased the maid's salary, thereby shaking the rock-ribbed foundations of Upper West Side society. In nothing did she find greater satisfaction than in being neither the bride nor the little woman, nor any like degrading thing which recently married girls are by their sentimental spinster friends expected to be. She did not whisper the intimate details of her honeymoon to other young married women. She did not run about quantity and tinnily telling of her difficulty with household work. When a purring baby-talking acquaintance gurgled, 
How did the Ruthie bride spend her morning? Did she cook some little dainty for her husband? Nothing, bourgeois, I'm sure. In reply, Ruth pleasantly observed, Not a chance. The Ruthie bride cursed out the janitor for not shooting up a dainty cabbage in the dumbwaiter, and then counted up her husband's cigarette coupons and skipped right down to the premium parlors with him and got him a pair of pale blue Boston garters and a cunning granite-ware stewpan, and then sponged lunch off Olive Donnelly. But nothing bourgeois. Such experience, told to Carl, he found diverting. He seemed, in the spring of 1914, to want no others. End of chapter 40